I've always wondered if I'd been at the stable that night. Would I have seen a king or just a baby? If I'd stood there with the shepherds listening to stories about choirs of angels, would I have asked, what child is this? Or would I have known that he someday would be the shepherd of all? If I'd watched wise men bring valuable gifts and kneel down under the guard of heavenly wonders, would I have understood that he was the one in whom I'd find all wisdom? And that he was the greatest gift of all just as that baby was held by his mother. He would hold me. He would hold me with his amazing grace. And his adoption by his father Joseph would be a picture of my adoption into God's family. Who could comprehend that this baby who was defenseless, swaddled, and held, would someday be the one holding me in his hands. I didn't witness a star moving across the sky scores of angels proclaiming his birth. But somehow, in the middle of my ordinary world, this extraordinary baby's birth found a place in my worn-down, beat-up heart. So like all those people who saw him, he's the one I've been waiting for. To repair me. Redeem me. Love me. Forgive me. Comfort me. Help me. Die for me. Raise me to life. So what child is this? He's the one who comes to save me. He's the one who comes to save me. To save me. To save me. He's the one who comes to save me. Things straight. Isaiah chapter 9. You would take your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 9. A very familiar passage this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, we're looking at number 6. There was a Sunday school teacher who was talking to her group of four-year-olds about uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph and, and tell them the Christmas story, of course. And the, uh, the teacher said, all right, now we're going to take time. We're going to draw and color and, and uh, put together some pictures of this whole Christmas story. And these four-year-olds got together and a uh, little boy over here, he drew a picture of, you know, the manger and the, the baby in the manger. And then uh, this child over here drew pictures of the angels proclaiming the message of the newborn king. And uh, this angel over, or this child over here, this four-year-old, decided to draw a picture of an airplane. And there were four people on that airplane. And uh, the teacher's like, I, you know, I'm just not sure. We, I know we've been talking about the Christmas story all month long, but I'm not sure what we talked about an airplane. And uh, then she asked a little boy, and his name was Jimmy. He said, Jimmy, come over here and explain this to me. And uh, she says, I see you drew an airplane here. And uh, uh, Jimmy said, well, they, they were flying into Egypt. Well, that makes total sense. He, they flew into Egypt. They took flight into Egypt. And uh, so he drew a plane. And she said, well, I understand here. I, I, I see these pictures here, and it looks like this is probably baby Jesus. And, and this one here is Joseph, and that one there is Mary. But what's this fourth one? And he says, well, uh, teacher, that's Pontius, the pilot. Now, he didn't exactly have it right, but I'm glad he's on the right track. Amen? You know, there's a little boy who was uh, playing baseball, and he's playing third base, and, and his dad walked up like uh, some dads do, and some people sit in the stands, some dads like me, and they just kind of lean on the fence, and he's playing third base. And he said, he said son, how are we doing? And the son's playing third base. He looks over and says, dad, we're losing. Man, we're losing 18 to nothing. And and 
uh, dad said, oh, man, I'm so sorry. You look so sad. You look so like, like hope is all lost. And he goes, oh, no, dad, it's only the first inning. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. You think 18 to nothing. You th- okay, well, I don't have a whole lot of confidence. I don't have a whole lot of hope in, my, in our defense, and I don't have a whole lot of hope in my pitching, but I got a whole lot of hope when it comes to our batting, right? And we're going to catch up even though it's 18 to nothing. That little boy had hope, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today is hope. What child is this? It's a child of hope. Now, as we look at this passage today, it's important that we understand the context of Isaiah. Isaiah being a prophet in the 700s B.C., uh, uh, 700 years plus before Christ was even born, and he's prophesying, and he even, uh, in his prophecies, he's telling the people of Israel, man, you guys are in a bad way. It looks bad. In fact, I want to show you how bad it looked. I want you, you got your finger there in Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to go back to chapter number 1 for a moment. We're going to kind of read a few verses here. Isaiah chapter 1, and I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read some uh, verses from God's Word this morning, out of, just out of respect to God's Word, and stand with me if you would. And we're going to read, uh, I'm going to kind of skip along to a few different verses here, but they were in a bad way. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, Isaiah 1, 2, Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, and I have nourished and brought up children. And they have rebelled against me, says God. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backward. Go to chapter number 3, verse 8. Turn to page or 2, chapter 3, verse number 8. For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen because their tongue and of their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul for they have brought evil Upon themselves. Go to chapter number five, verse 18. 518. Woe, uh, yeah, verse number 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and as sin and sin as if with a cart rope. They say, Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, uh, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. I don't think God's very happy with Israel, do you? Actually, Judah. But I want you to look at verse number 25, very end of it. Right, let's read the whole verse. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is roused against his people, you think? He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets, for all this anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, one more verse, chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Father, bless our time in your word this morning. I pray for the soul that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would be saved today, Lord, that they would believe upon the message, the love, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his birth. Thank you for his death. Thank you, Lord, for his resurrection. And thank you that we can have new life through salvation in him. Bless this time of worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Hope. What child is this? It's a child of hope. Child of hope. Now, these people needed hope, and that's what Isaiah was giving them. Things were bad. Their sin was wicked. God was ready to destroy them. God was ready to take them out. But at the same time, God says, but I still have my hand stretched out to you. And we see in chapter 9 and verse number 6 that God is still loving them. God still is giving them hope because there's one, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that was to come. He was providing for them hope in the middle of total disaster. Hope in the middle of absolute wickedness and iniquity. Hope in the midst of God ready to unleash his wrath and his judgment on his own people. But yet there's hope. Hope. There's that confident expectation. A lot of people, we, we, have, we think about hope in a lot of different ways. You know, people, we, some of you are saying right now to yourself, man, I hope we go to this restaurant this afternoon after church. I hope this message is short. I hope tonight when we have a candlelight service, we don't build the, burn the building down. Amen. I hope these things are going to, to happen. And we really don't know. But biblical hope is not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is an expectation of a coming event that brings forth the goodness of God and the greatness of God is exhibited. God's greatness. That, that when we think about that, you know, we, we look back and we have hope that Jesus came. And that's a pretty real hope, amen? And I have a pretty real hope that Jesus will come again. Is anybody with me on that? I have a hope that there is a heaven. And it's not just a, well, I hope so, maybe so, think so. Man, it's a hope I know so that this is going to happen. This is why the psalmist said, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Psalm 42 and verse number 5. So Isaiah here knew God's judgment was coming. He knew that it had for the northern kingdom Israel, and it was now coming for the southern kingdom Judah. He knew also that God would remember his people. He knew that there was also a message of hope. And if you look throughout Isaiah, you could basically split it in half. There's hope, and then there's God's wrath. You know, he preaches both there. And to be honest with you, if Isaiah preached in any of our churches today, he'd probably be kicked out. He probably would be kicked out because he told it like it was. He didn't pull any punches there. And so, but the same thing is he also told it what it, was, what it was like and what it should be when it comes to hope. There is hope. He had hope in God. This message was also not just a message of God's judgment and God's wrath, but it was a message of hope. Today I want to share with you three aspects of hope when it comes to the Christmas story as we look at this one verse here today, Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6. Number one is this, hope prophesied. Hope prophesied. Now when Isaiah wrote this, this was hundreds, probably around 700 years before Jesus was ever born. We think about a prophet or a prophecy, right away we think in terms of telling the future, right? A prophet predicts the future. But a prophet, his, his, there's a two-sided coin to that. He just did not foretell the future. He foretells the truth. You see, they're two totally separate things, but they're both sides, uh, two sides of one coin. 
He just didn't predict the future. He predicted and he preached and he proclaimed the truth of the Word of God. And what does he say here in this verse? Unto us a child is born. There's a child that's coming. There's a son that's going to be given. He preaches a prophecy. So hope here is being prophesied that was going to take place 700 years later. I had a prof one time. Uh, we were having a discussion and and uh, basically, uh, I, you know, we were talking about all the prophecies and things that have come true. And I asked this question. No one ever really gave me a, a good answer because those who are atheists and those who are the, the skeptics and those who are the critics, those who are against God, against God's word, they can't seem to explain the uh, question of how in the world can these things be predicted literally hundreds and even thousands of years before they ever happen. They can't answer those questions. We can, amen, because God is truth and God chooses his people to preach and proclaim the truth as he did with Isaiah here. There are over 300 prophecies of Christ's first coming in the Old Testament. Think about that. Over 300 of them. That is just crazy. And all 300 of these were proven true in one person literally hundreds of years later. Scripture tells us in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be God. It tells us that the Messiah would be, this Christ would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. He would come from the, the tribe of Judah, Genesis chapter 49, verse number 10. He would be of the lineage of David and of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he would occupy David's throne in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. That he would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7, 14. That he would take a trip, Hosea says in Hosea 11, 1. He would take a trip, at, a trip or a flight to Egypt. And be away from Bethlehem and Galilee. It speaks of the thousands that would be killed as uh, the, uh, uh, the ruler killed thousands of children trying to find out who this king is whenever Jesus was born. Scripture tells us in uh, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse number 15. It tells us that this Messiah would come before the destruction of the temple, which took place in A.D. 70. Daniel predicted that in 9.6. He would re be rejected of men in Isaiah 53. In Zechariah 9.9, that he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That he would be betrayed by 30 pieces with 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11.12. He'd be betrayed by a friend, Judas. Psalm 41 and verse number 9. That whenever he died, he would die to crucifixion. Psalm 22. His legs would not be broken. His side would be pierced. He would be crucified between two things. And we could go on and on and on and on. Question, did those things come true? It's hope prophesied. Hope prophesied. That baby came about 2,000 years ago. Praise God that baby's alive and well today, amen? He's on the throne of heaven. He's sovereign God. He's sovereign God. I know I've shared this with you before, but the, 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 the odds of all this coming true hundreds of years later in one person they say that if only eight of these prophecies, not 300, only eight of them came true in one person, only eight out of 300 plus, if only eight of these came true, that that would be one chance in one, let me read the, the number here, 100 quintillion. Not a million, not a billion, not a trillion, not a quadrillion. One in 100 quintillion. You know what that does to the brains of a mathematician? Now, we're not talking eight. We're talking over 300. Hope was prophesied. Hope 
was prophesied. Isaiah is saying here that there's someone coming who's going to defy all the odds. He's going to freak out all the mathematicians and the statisticians. He's going to go beyond human thought. He's going to be one born at the right place, at the right time, to the right people, when the fullness of time had come, Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4. And this one would be wonderful, a great counselor, almighty God, eternal father, and the prince of all peace. I read a story of a missionary uh, by the name of Ian Hall, and a missionary to Romania. And uh, he met this woman by the name of Christina. And uh, Christina, in March of 1992, she was in the hospital with what's known as an ectopic pregnancy. Basically, the baby had died while it was still in her womb, and it was, it was decomposing. And, and, of course, that made her very, very sick, and she, her life was on the line. And uh, Ian says that he and his wife, Sheila, uh, went to the hospital to pray with Christina, and God miraculously healed her. But in the process uh, of all that went on, the doctors had to remove uh, most of her uterus and one of her ovaries. And they basically told her, you know, there's no way you're ever going to have a child again. Well, her strength returned, and within about a, a couple of months or so, she returned back to church. And, and uh, this particular missionary, he happened to be holding another uh, set of meetings there. And she, uh, he, and along with uh, his wife, they, they, they met with this young lady, Christina, and her husband, uh, Stefan, to pray with them and to, to encourage them. And uh, so she, they asked, you know, will you pray for us? We pray that God would give us a child, thinking that they were speaking of adoption. They were thinking about adopting a child. And this missionary, Ian Hall, said, I, I began to pray, but suddenly I found myself prophesying, he said. And he said this, in one year, you will stand in this place holding a son born of your own body. And his wife, after the prayer was over, his wife basically said, well, why did you say that? You know what, you know, what they've been through, and there's no way that this is going to happen, and you know she can't bear children. You've really put yourself out on a limb with this. And he, he, he just responded to her with, you know, I just, I don't, I don't understand why I, I prayed that. Uh, I just, it just came to me, and I, I just prayed it, and, and I just couldn't understand it. Well, he says that year he returned to the area from time to time, and he happened to see Stefan and Christina occasionally, but they didn't say anything about adopting a baby, and although he was troubled at, about this, obviously, at first, time went on, he just kind of forgot about it. But in May of 1993, he said he returned to the area conducting some more services, and the pastor announced that they were going to have baby dedication that day, and he was going to ask Ian Hall to pray over those children that, for that baby dedication. And the pastor, or the missionary said he looked across the auditorium, he really didn't see anybody with a baby. But then he looked in the farthest corner, and he saw Christina and Stefan walking forward. And little did he know that they were holding a baby boy that was born six weeks earlier. Hope came true. Just as Isaiah prophesied that there's hope coming, church, listen, hope came. And hope is here. Hope was prophesied. There's hope today, amen? And it's not just hope for you and you and you and not you and not you and not you. There's hope for every human being, amen? Hope was prophesied, and that's what Isaiah was doing. He knew it for a certainty. God is going to exhibit his greatness and his goodness through my prophecy God has laid on my own heart. But not only is hope uh, 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 prophesied, hope is also personified. Look at it, that verse again, personified. Underline a couple of words here. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That sounds pretty personal, doesn't it? He sent someone to humanity. 
us, someone given to human beings. And it wasn't just someone, it was a certain one. It was not just someone, it was a child, capital C. It was a son, capital C, the birthing of a male child. He prophesied that this is going to happen, and then 700 plus years later, this child is born, and we're talking a real human being, born of a virgin. A person came, someone they'd been hoping for, for decades and centuries and millennia, the one that they'd been hoping for, the one they'd been praying for. Ever since Genesis 3.15, which we talked about last week, Thousands of years earlier, this is Genesis 3.15, all of a sudden that hope that was prophesied became personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Very familiar verses. Hold your finger there in Isaiah 9. You know, sometimes we just kind of read through God's Word, and I know I do this too. I'm kind of guilty of it. But sometimes we just read it and just kind of read through it. Well, I've read this a lot of times, but boy, I'll tell you, as soon as I am developing this message, the Lord just laid a couple of passages on my heart and just, again, brought to life the meaning of God's Word. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. This is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word, what was it, church? Was God. He, that is He, the, the Word, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's, that's odd, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the... And he also said in the in book of John, I am the light of the world. And the darkness shines, uh, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Drop down to verse number 14. And the word became what? Flesh. This word that was with God in the beginning, the creator, the one without him nothing was made that was made, that word became flesh, became a man, became a human. Turn with me, continue. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Why didn't Jesus consider it robbery to be equal with God? Because he is God. <laughs> There's no reason to feel like it's robbery. Because he is God, right? Verse number 7. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. What's he saying? Hope personified itself. Became a person. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He was just an ordinary man. When Jesus walked on the earth, if you take away all the miracles and all the, all the things that he said and did, he'd be just an ordinary person. Isaiah 53 says when you look on him, there's no, nothing within you that would say, well, we desire him, we like him, because he was just an average person. He would have blended in just fine. It was who he was and what he did and what he preached that set him apart from everyone else. And when Jesus was born, that hope that Isaiah spoke about, that hope that was spoken of in Genesis 3.15, that hope that was spoken of throughout the, the sacrifices throughout Exodus, that hope that was spoken of throughout the Psalms and throughout Jeremiah and throughout the Old Testament, that hope, that hope became a person. The real person, the real deal, Jesus Christ. Listen, people could deny it all day long, but the fact is this. Jesus came from heaven to earth, amen? He came because he loves you, 
and he loves me. Many of you uh, have, uh, many of us have taken our children to Disney. Now, we as adults, for the most part, we don't go to Disney because we want to go to Disney. We go to Disney because we like to take our children to Disney. Now, maybe you do, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I remember growing up with, with my boys, and you probably do with your own children, one of the things that they like to do when they go to Disney is they like to meet those characters that they almost borderline idolized growing up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They can't wait to come face-to-face with Mickey Mouse. They can't wait to come face-to-face with Belle. They can't wait to come face-to-face with, what's uh, Frozen? Elsa? Elsa. Oh, I got to meet Elsa. You know, they can't wait to uh, come face-to-face with Buzz Lightyear and Woody and, you know, all those characters, right? We used to have a, a teacher here who taught uh, our drama class in our middle school. I think she taught here for two years. Her weekend job was she was at Disney and she was Cinderella. And uh, this young lady, uh, uh, our principal at that time, he knew it, and his daughter was a huge Cinderella fan. So he set it up for, to take his family to Disney and for this young lady to meet up with his daughter. Boy, you're talking about serious daddy points. Oh, my. He planned this thing out. And it was like whenever she got to see Cinderella, she did not see that young lady that was teaching at our school. She saw the beautiful uh, gown and the, the, the slippers and the, the whole, the, the whole slot. It's just they, Cinderella, you know. And, and it was just, listen, when Jesus came on this earth, he became a person. And all of a sudden when the angels uh, announced, the angel announces to Joseph, and announces to Mary, and Mary tells uh, her cousin Elizabeth about it. When the shepherds come, listen, think about this now, think about this. For thousands of years, this child has been prophesied, and all of a sudden, there he lays. Star above, sky opens up, angels are everywhere announcing glory to God in the highest. You talk about a moment. Man, you know that, well, they left there praising God and giving glory to God. Man, they were having a Pentecostal fit, amen? It could have been something, I mean, they were just, woo! You could just imagine why. They were in the very presence of the one who had been prophesied for several thousand years. Hope was personified. Jesus came, but not only was he personified, lastly, hope was provided. Hope was provided. It wasn't just about the baby being born. It was who that baby was. It was who that baby is. We see that in this verse here, back in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. He is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is the one who is filled with wonder. You think about the word wonderful. Now, uh, there in your translation, some of your translations, the Old King James, New King James, has a comma between wonderful and counselor, and other translations like the New American Standard and others may not have a comma there. Either way, it really doesn't matter to me. I kind of lean towards the latter, that they're together. And the reason I, I lean in that direction is because uh, much of Isaiah is poetically written. And if you have wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Doesn't that make sense poetically? Twos all the way across. Either way, we know that he was wonderful. Think about that for a moment. Filled with wonder. Everywhere he went, people were in awe of Jesus. Everything he did. The the, the religious leaders, they couldn't preach like that. They couldn't teach like that. What is it about this guy? Oh, it's this guy that comes from Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth? Oh, come and see. 
Who is this one who, who heals the blind and the lame and the deaf and the mute? Who is it? Why? He was filled with wonder. Remember Peter, James, and John got to experience that wonder. as there with the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus was literally transformed, transfigured before them in such a way that they could not even look upon him because the very glory of God was there. He's wonderful. Would you all admit with me today that he's wonderful, that he's filled with wonder, filled with such love and such hope? But he's not only that, he's counselor. He's beyond human thinking. He's beyond the human mind. He's beyond human understanding. He's even beyond the human imagination, the heavenly discernment, the miraculous knowledge, the prophetic knowledge. Over and over again, he told people what, he had to go to Jerusalem, what was going to happen at Jerusalem. Over and over again, he healed people. Why? Because he knew that he could do it. That wisdom that was there as the great counselor. Time after time after time, the religious leaders would come to him and, and say, hey, what about this, Jesus? And Jesus' answered would stump them, and they would walk away going, they wouldn't know what to say. They'd be totally baffled. Why? Because he is the counselor, the wonderful counselor. He's also the mighty God. The words there, we've been studying on Wednesday nights, uh, the names of God. And this particular name of God is El Gibor. El Gibor. El meaning God. Gibor meaning strong and mighty. God, strong and mighty. In other words, mightier than any other. Stronger than any other. Some of your translations translated as the valiant one. Don't you want somebody that's valiant on your side? That's pretty cool to have a valiant God on my side, a valiant warrior, this strong and mighty God. I mean, my goodness, when you think about him being strong and mighty, who else? Who else could part a Red Sea and the people walk across on dry land? Who else? Who else can cause the walls of Jericho's to fall without firing a shot, without doing a thing other than it happening? Who else? Who else could take a barren woman into her 70s and 80s and 90s and then cause that woman to have a child? Who else can take a woman who is a virgin, a young teenage young girl, and, and cause her to have a child when the Holy Spirit comes upon her and overshadows her? This is the great and mighty God that we have. What a mighty God we served. What a mighty God that he's come and he's lived a sinless life. He's died for the sins of all humanity, yours and mine. He offers a an opportunity to go to heaven and give us new life because he's able to raise himself from the dead. Why did he do all those things? Because he can. Isn't that cool to think about? Why did Jesus? Because he can. To show you that he's God. That he's El Gibor. That he's the God strong and mighty. He's the everlasting father. He's the father who lives outside of time. We talked about this when we discussed the names of God, how God, God, time did not come into existence until creation. Before that, there was no time. When Jesus comes back and we go out to eternity, there's no time. The only, the only reason time is here is because of you and me. We need time, amen? And some of us don't have enough of it, amen? But God has given us time, but God lives outside of time. And we talked about when we studied the names of God, how God will take the past, and he takes the present, and he takes the future, things that we know about, the things that we're experiencing right now, and the things we have no clue about yet, and he sees them all as happening at the, this exact moment, now. He sees everything in the present. And I, I'm so thankful for that, and I'm thankful that God doesn't show me the future, because if he did, it'd probably scare us all to death, amen? I'd be, I'd be afraid to go into the future, but he is that everlasting, the one outside of time, and he's that father. We're people in here today, you haven't had the greatest father in the world. We have young people in our Christian school, 
Their dads are either missing or their dads are abusive or their dads are, are just not there. And their dads are just, you know, and it's, it's a shame. But you know what? God is that father that we all long for. He is that father that is outside of time, that sees everything like a father should and cares for his children. He is the everlasting father, and he is the provider, finally, of peace with God and the provider of the peace of God. You need peace with God. You see, Scripture tells us in uh, Romans chapter 5 that we were enemies of God, but we've been brought to know Christ, and we have peace with God. You need peace with God. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, Scripture tells us that you are at enmity with God. That means you are an enemy of God. You're at war with Him. You're not a child of God if you don't know Christ as your Savior. But He's come to provide, to have peace with Him. God doesn't want to be at war with you. Jesus was involved in the greatest battle, war of all time when He went to the cross and He defeated death hell, and the grave. He's won the battle. The question is, will you receive that peace and be at peace with God? And believers, you today, some of us are away from the Lord, and we know it. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want the pastor to preach on it. But some of us are away from the Lord. You don't have the peace of God. You have the peace of you. You got the peace of doing your own thing, and I'm getting by doing that. When things could be so much better if you lived in the presence of God, living in the middle of the will of God, and he could bring that peace, as Scripture tells us, that passes all understanding. You see, peace, excuse me, hope has been provided. Hope's been provided. Do you know that hope? Have you taken that hope into your life? He was prophesied. He was personified. And he's He's provided. Have you received that hope? Maybe if you're away from the Lord right now, you, you receive that hope as, your, as Christ as your Savior, but man, you're just running from God. I want to encourage you. Go back to him. Hope is still there. Hope is still there. Going back to Isaiah 5.25, God still reaches out his hand. And even though Israel was running from God and wicked against God and rebellion against him, he still reached out his hand. Why? Because he is a God of hope. Who is this child? What child is this? This child is a child of hope. Let me close with this story. There was a story in the Nashville newspaper about uh, something that happened in Memphis, Tennessee. A woman by the name of Hope. She had pulled a man from a chilly harbor waters after he had driven his car off the embankment and into uh, the waters in order to attempt suicide. Hope Phillips and her husband and her son uh, were there, and she said the following day that they were sitting in their car together, and uh, on a Sunday afternoon when they saw this man drive down Riverside Drive into Wolf River Harbor. Phillips said she saw the man climb from the sinking car, realizing that she, or that he, did not want to die. She said his face was like, I'm so desperate, please help me. All I could do was run into the water, she said. Philip swam over towards the man, and about he, the, the car itself was about 25 feet off the embankment there. And she swam out to him and used a tree branch to reach out to him and to pull him toward the bank. And her husband helped her drag him up onto the shore. And she said, he kept telling us that he wasn't worth anything. And I said, you are worth something. You are worth something. You're valued in God's eyes. You're here, aren't you? We saved you, uh, didn't we? You are worth something. Then he asked, looked up at this lady and asked her, what's your name? And she said, my name's 
And he said, what? Hope. And he said a third time, no, really, what is your name? And she said, my name is Hope. God continually reaches out to you with hope. Some of you today may be living a life, and you, you say you're saved, you say you're born again, but maybe you're not. Oh, yeah, you believe in the hope, but you haven't given your life over to the hope. You all realize, you all realize that Satan believes in the hope. You realize that. Satan believes, a lot of people say, I believe in Jesus. Satan believes that Jesus died on the cross. Satan believes that Jesus rose from the dead. Satan believes that Jesus is God. Y'all realize that, right? He knows that. He knows that book better than all of us put together. The fact is this, Satan refuses, refused at one point to give himself over to God, and that's what separated him from God, his sin. So just because we believe in God and we believe in these things about Jesus, that's not what it's about. What it's about is submitting to the hope. Jesus submitted, think about this, Jesus submitted to come from heaven down to earth. Jesus submitted to go to the cross. Jesus submitted to go through the pain, the heartache, and the bearing of your sin and mine. Jesus submitted to the very will of the Father because he knew that was your only hope. That was my only hope. I encourage you today, would you give yourself over to the child of hope? He's prophesied about, personified, and finally, when he came 2,000 years ago, he was provided. Would you believe on him today? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Thank you for your attention this morning. Hope. Hope. Maybe you've never given yourself over to the hope of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never asked Christ to come in your life and to save you. Would you today? If you died today and you had to come face to face with God, would God allow you into heaven? It's not about religion. It's not about necessarily just, just what you believe, but rather believing and repenting and give, just giving your life over to him and saying, God, I'm trusting you with my life. This morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you've never had a time in your life where you've truly repented of your sins and submitted to his authority, submitted to his hope, you can do that right now. In the quietness of this moment, right there at your seat, you can call out to him. You can say, dear God, you know, I just don't, I know I can't get to heaven without you. And I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He is my one and only hope to get to heaven. I believe that He died for me. I believe that He rose from me. I believe that He wants to save me. So God, right now, I'm just calling out to you. Would you please come into my life and forgive me? I believe on your Son as my only hope. Come into my life and save me. I turn from my sin. I turn to you. Please come into my life and save me. Believers, those of you who truly have asked Christ to come to your life, you know, sometimes we tend to leave that hope. I know I do. Sometimes we get distracted by the craziness of life. 
We don't think about the hope much. All we do when we come to church, but day by day, do we share that hope with others? Do we share that hope that came in the person of Jesus Christ? Do we live as if we have hope? Because we do. And it's not just a maybe so think so hope. It's a reality. Maybe we need to confess some things before the Lord and reconnect with the hope of the Lord Jesus who saved us. Father, move in our hearts during this invitation time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together if you would. Are you hurting and broken within? If you have a need this morning, I want to encourage you to come to the altar. If you don't know Christ your Savior, maybe you just prayed and asked Christ to come to your life. I would love to hear about that. Would you come tell me? I invite you to come. Whatever the need might be, maybe you want to pray for somebody. Maybe you just want to thank God for Jesus being born. Why don't you come? Kneel at the altar and just thank God for that. Let's sing.